You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And today on the show, we are featuring an interview with Madhulika Shrikumar. She's program lead for safety critical AI at the Partnership on AI. And she was one of the authors of a recent paper called Managing the Risks of AI Research, Six Recommendations for Responsible Publication. So when we got a chance to sit down with her, we asked her the first question that we ask all of our guests, how did you get where you are? I am a program lead at the Partnership on AI. Um, so PAI is a multi-stakeholder organization that's been established to advance um, responsible AI practices. So the partners you know, span academia, civil society organizations, and tech companies. And my kind of journey to PAI really started with my training as a lawyer in India. And one of the first jobs right out of law school was working at one of the largest think tanks in New Delhi, where I was kind of looking at regulation of emerging technologies. And one of the first projects that I worked on was this whole idea of how does a foreign law enforcement you know, agent access data from a U.S. tech company during a criminal investigation? Take, for instance, like a crime that takes place in New Delhi, the victim, the perpetrator, they're all located in New Delhi. But let's say they accused shared a message on Facebook Messenger that is relevant for the prosecution. So an Indian investigating officer has to make a request under the U.S. Fourth Amendment law to be able to get that information, that, that chat message. And this process can take years most often. That seems insane. So like if the message was written on a piece of paper in India, it would be in the physical jurisdiction of the people where the crime happened, the people who were investigating it, all of that stuff. But because it took place on this medium that someone else somewhere else controls, it involves an entirely different legal system. Exactly. And having, you know, gone to law school in the U.S., I can tell you Fourth Amendment is not easy, let alone for an overworked cop, you know, on the other side of the world. Right. And that project really kind of drew into focus for me that regulation is not just about like outdated laws, but it's also really about norms that have been established by the tech industry. So, for instance, a lot of this, you know, uh, question of how data is shared with foreign law enforcement agencies is really built on evolving practices from the tech industry and norms that they have adopted. So I want to know, kind of explore this further. So not really top-down regulation, but think more critically about how does the tech community come together to agree to do something or not do something. And that's kind of what got me interested in PAI and the conversation today, which is how can the AI research community really think more critically about their responsibility to society and what norms can they adopt to better do that? Yeah, yeah. And I love, I'd love to dig in there. Uh, you were co-author on this recently published paper from PAI about just that subject, which is really fascinating and I think is so crucial because as, as you mentioned from your work previously, what's happening is we've sort of bypassed regulation. And since they're sort of, I don't know, you're a lawyer, but I'm going to say the sentence, there is no such thing as international law, right? Like <laughs> we have a system that's being governed by like norms and what people think of as like the regular thing to do, which seems sort of like the Wild West. And I don't know, things weren't that great in the Wild West. So tell me, tell me about the paper. What inspired it? What, what do you think took place that made you and your colleagues at PAI say, look, we gotta, we gotta formally publish this. We gotta shine a light on this. We have to like write this out and get people to read it. Yeah, no, that's a great, great question. So first off, I wanna start with a shout out to uh, my former colleague, Rosie Campbell who's the lead author on this project, has been working on it for a couple of years. And to kind of go back to your question about what really got us interested in this, you know, in the first place. So there have been isolated calls in the research community 
that it's time for you know AI researchers to think about what they put out in the world and to take more responsibility for some of the societal consequences that we're seeing out in the world about how AI is being deployed. And what became clear over time is that this was getting this was becoming more mainstream. There was an increasing interest as a multi-stakeholder organization. We could hear it from our partners and from the other actors that we engage with. So what really happened was this question kind of became a part of what's called the Overton window, right? And the Overton window is really a phrase where it becomes a part of a range of ideas, which becomes super acceptable to a community. They're willing to consider it, perhaps even adopt it. It almost felt like, yeah, the AI research community was coming into that kind of window where they're like, yep, it's undeniable that there are some harmful consequences and we need to do something about it. And PAI was kind of uniquely situated as a multi-stakeholder organization to be able to kind of convene some of this conversation in part because the AI research community consists of individual researchers, research leadership, you know, conferences and journals, tech companies. It's really a disaggregated field. And that was something that we were kind of, you know, we could bring together and really um, distill in our white paper. And the other reason that I can think of is a lot of other dual-use applied research communities have norms. They have procedures around how they handle, you know, sensitive and harmful information. Think about cybersecurity, think about biotechnology or biosecurity. And the AI community hasn't had that moment of reflection up until now, which is kind of why we decided to capitalize on it. Yeah, absolutely. And so tell me, what is the, from this paper, if you had to boil it down to one sentence that you could get the entire community, regardless of how they're involved or what sort of level of practitioner they are, to carry around with them, sort of inscribed on their minds, what would that be? Ooh, I love that one sentence. One sentence. I know. Boil down your research to one sentence, Matthew. Please <laughs> take your entire career and make it one yeah. sentence. It's going to be a long sentence, but I'm going to do it. So Do it. It is time for the AI research community to normalize discussion around both positive and negative consequences of their research. So that could be, you know, potential malicious uses, unintended consequences, AI being used in inappropriate applications, and any other systemic harm that their research can contribute to or really play into. Full stop. That's the entire sentence. That doesn't. That wasn't a very long sentence. That seems like a pretty easy sentence <laughs> to right. carry around. And I think it's so interesting that in that sentence you included both the positive and the negative, right? Because to keep those things in balance really allows us to weigh: is this is the harm being caused here greater than the reward, or is the reward greater than the harm? And you have to actually like balance those things because there's never you can never get to operate in a space where everything is all good or everything is all bad. I think that's so key. Yeah, no, you, you hit the nail on the head, right? Because um, it's not really about a facial recognition tool being used only for harm. There could be potential positive use cases. But you're right, it's really about that balance. And often it's about articulating that balance, right? Like, like Let's say you're writing a new paper on a new technique to manipulate videos, okay? And now that can be used for face swapping in an action movie, but that can be used to create non-consensual imagery as well. So really, the researcher's responsibility here is to be able to articulate what are some of the positive use cases, negative use cases of failure modes, and then it's helpful for the community to kind of reflect um, collectively about how they feel about that particular research product. Nice. And so you say we're, we're coming into the Overton window zone, and we're, we're hoping to have this be part of the more normative conversation. But what are you hoping that those norms begin to look like? Is this going to be like an individual responsibility? Or do you see this as something like, well, it's time for Microsoft to say there's a checklist before you put out a paper. Like, how do you see this coming into practice? Ooh, that's a great question. 
if I could just take, you know, take a step back and think more critically about um, the problem statement, right? What are we trying to solve here? So if you think about scientific research, it's always enjoyed like a pride of place in you know, modern societies. It's you know, kind of cataloged how we have progressed as a humanity, as a species. It mitigates some of the biggest challenges um, that the world is worth kind of facing currently. But what's also become clear over time is that scientific research can produce devastating outcomes. It can even potentially produce catastrophic outcomes. So AI research is that one subset of the larger community, which has come into a lot of focus in the last decade. It's being commercialized you know, at a pace that we haven't seen before. Governments are interested in kind of leveraging it, regulating it. And frankly, we don't go a day without you know, finding you know, some machine learning being used in, in some of the products that we're using on a day-to-day basis, right? But what's also become clear is that AI research does produce harmful outcomes. You know, when it's used in healthcare, it can advance unequal outcomes. When it's used in criminal justice, it can be discriminatory. And it can be used to survey you know, vulnerable populations. So what we're really trying to go after is how do we manage the risks of AI research? Um, and we're really thinking about the publication as a point of intervention. You know, arguably the AI research lifecycle has many points of intervention from funding, you know, but what we're really looking at is, you know, this question of publication. And we're thinking about it broadly, not just conference and journal publications, but even a researcher who's putting out something on Medium or who's putting out something or who's sharing code, for instance, on GitHub. What are some norms that they can adopt to kind of ensure that um, the community is ethically kind of um, reflecting? So kind of go back to your question now, is it an individual responsibility or a collective responsibility? It is really a collective responsibility, right? If I, as an individual researcher, decide to hold back on a particular research product because I think, hey, maybe this could be dangerous, but someone else goes ahead and, you know, goes ahead and they decide to do it anyway, then the goal is kind of not achieved here, right? Um, so consensus and coordination is an essential piece of being able to make sure that we manage the downstream, you know, kind of use cases, which can be negative. So I think in terms of what researchers can do, and there's a whole bunch of, we, we essentially have six recommendations in the white paper. But I think the most important takeaway here is, you know, being able to articulate your motivation. Why did you decide to embark on that particular research question? And thinking more critically about that trade-off that I mentioned before, what are some harms and what are some positive use cases that can come from it? And lastly, the rule of thumb that we have is the reflection can be proportional to how significant that advancement is. If it's just incremental, it makes sense for a researcher to, you know, to just focus on that particular incremental advance. But if you're coming up with a, you know, um, a new technique, which is like a paradigm shift or in a contentious domain like facial recognition, then it needs to be a deeper, longer reflection um, that they need to articulate. It sounds very accessible. It sounds very workable. And I love the idea of thinking flexibly about what is a publication, right? Because it's it's so far beyond peer-reviewed journal articles that appear at conferences. You know, there's GitHub, there's archive, there's pre-publication, there's tweeting things (laughs) to your friends that you saw at a conference or whatever. But just run down the list for me of those six recommendations that you have for people to be able to make this thinking actionable for them. So the first one, so we're really looking at three different actors that we have targeted in the white paper. So the first one is individual researchers. The second one is research leadership. And lastly, we're looking at conferences and journals. So as you mentioned, you know, this can't really be a top-down requirement that just a conference or a journal establishes because research can really go out in so many different ways. So that's kind of why we're focused, you know, on individual researchers first, of course, because they're kind of at the front lines of being able to really affect this change. So the first recommendation we have is what I mentioned before, which is kind of articulate 
uh, what is the contribution, what is the motivation. The second thing we have referred to here is if you're kind of using compute, articulate, you know, how much and why. And part of the reason why is we now know that, you know, it can have environmental, you know, consequences. We also know that if someone's going to replicate a particular model, if it takes a large amount of compute, it's going to be less likely that a malicious actor is going to do it. So all of that is really helpful for the community to be able to reflect on what are some of the bad use cases. And finally, it's just what I said, kind of normalize that discussion, articulate the trade-offs, you know, what are some choices that you made, you know, while um, you engage in that research that could be relevant for some of the downstream use cases. So if it's like creating a data set, maybe, you know, speak to how diverse that data set is, because you know it's going to be used, you know, uh, further along down the line. As for research leadership, what we have articulated is they really need to start commending individual researchers who take this additional step. Because what we're really thinking about here is a culture of responsibility, right? And individual researchers, junior researchers can't really do it alone. So it really has to be kind of a prerogative. It has to be commended and identified, you know, in research teams, both in academic institutions um, and in non-academic institutions as well. And the other thing we speak to is start this process early. And that's something research leadership, you know, they're uniquely situated to do. You don't have to think at the point of publication, should we publish this or not? You can really think about it at the time of the research question itself, which is, you know, do we think this is something that could be morally objectionable? Do we think this could be misused in different geographies or political climates? And that can happen earlier on in the research process. But that's really something for a research leadership to encourage in a particular team. And lastly, we have, you know, two sets of recommendations for conferences and journals. So the first one is expand your peer review criteria, right? Consider you know, ethical consequences, consider downstream consequences. But what we've also said is that establish a separate peer review process when it's a question of whether whether publish that particular research or not. And that's in part because that question of whether it's too risky to publish can often be an interdisciplinary exercise. And that's something that perhaps our existing peer review, you know, mechanisms are not perhaps established to do because experts in machine learning, right? But it makes sense to have experts in machine learning and cybersecurity when, let's say, there's a paper on a particular you know, AI cybersecurity risk, for instance, a vulnerability, which maybe if you kind of share that in a research paper, can be weaponized. So in that instance, when it's a question of publish or not, you might want to have experts from other domains. And that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of the entirety of the six recommendations that I just ran through. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. And I think that I think that the idea of for research leadership to be involved in commendations of this sort of action when they're taken on a smaller scale, because so often these kinds of things and when you're thinking about them as sort of nascent norms, that's like invisible labor, right? Like that's not that's it's not anything that anybody gets credit for, but it has to be like it has to be done in order for anything to change. And I think that given the fact that that's such a tight knit relationship between industry and the practitioner community, so much of it overlaps these days that it can be hard to, there can be a chilling effect if you're not seeing that sort of commendation, especially for stuff that might have an impact on the industrial bottom line or, you know, um, your market impact. And so having that basically praise of doing the right thing seems so crucial. How do you think that we encourage that? I'm, it seems like such a fundamental thing, but it also seems like getting into this weird zone of personal management style. Like, what do we need to do to make these norms more 
widespread when we're thinking about them as personal habits? No, that's a great question. I think what we have kind of seen play out over the past couple of years is that there is a backlash when there's a research paper that's put out that the community thinks shouldn't have been put out in the first place. So there is a reputational cost that is kind of attached both, you know, if it's an academic institution or a tech company, you really need to be able to think about, you know, what's going to happen if this doesn't land or if this gets the attention and, you know, you receive a lot of criticism and that I think, and that's something we mentioned in the white paper, that's something that can be entirely avo- uh, you know, avoided if you kind of articulate the benef- you know, benefits and you know, trade-offs and downstream use cases that can be negative. So that to me is a powerful kind of motivator of being able to create that change. The other one that I can think of is when we engage with the community, I think more often than not everyone, maybe not everyone, but a majority of people agreed that there is a responsibility to do better. You know, the scientific community isn't one which is unfamiliar to societal responsibility, right? If you think about the obligation of, you know, if you have a human subject research, you have to approach the Institution Review Board in the U.S., um, you know, make sure you respect their autonomy, um, or if it's animals that you don't treat them cruelly. There have always been instances where the scientific community had to come to terms with the fact that they have ethical conundrums, you know, they have to act responsibly, and they're members of society as well. So part of my response to, the, uh, to this, it's not new. What, what really makes this different is that it's more about a downstream kind of responsibility to society, which can seem a bit more abstract and daunting at first, but the community is otherwise not unfamiliar with owing responsibility to each other or owing responsibility to the practice of scientific inquiry itself. So I think part of this is just kind of recognizing it's not going to be easy to begin with. You know, we are testing our muscle. It is going to be a collective effort. We're trying to do our best here. The goal of this process is not to forbid science. Um, The goal of this process is not to catch every single bad downstream use case, because that can be really hard. Yeah, but what we're really trying to do at this, you know, stage is, you know, kind of do our best. And then I think it'll become clear that the community might, you know, want to involve other norms, you know, once they kind of start recognizing that, you know, there's a lot of negative use cases in a particular domain, for instance. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's so interesting. You mentioned the idea of the the reputational cost of publishing something that hasn't been like thoroughly analyzed. I think we're also starting to see the reputational cost of not allowing stuff to be analyzed or like that, that chilling effect or not putting out a tool that hasn't been that doesn't come with a sort of a more in-depth analysis of what its impacts and implications might be. Or, you know, when researchers say, hey, I wanted, I tried to ask this question and the group that I work for said, you shouldn't ask that question because it might reflect poorly on the, the strategies that we take and the tools that we use. And I think that that's having both of those sides of the conversation is so important for moving this forward. What do you think is the next step for this kind of uh, for this call from from PAI? I, we've we've seen some of the conferences take up formal requirements in your paper submits to at least you know have have done some thinking around this area. But where where do you think the next step is? So we have identified some outstanding challenges in our white paper and kind of suggested next steps. Um, so the first one that comes to my mind, and this is really the gold standard is can we, as a community, categorize AI research by risk levels, right? That's an important process because it's just going to be so much easier for an individual researcher to be able to consider, you know, what are some risks that I have to be mindful of? And, you know, what are some risks which perhaps, you know, which will impact whether I redact some information in my paper or I, you know, or I adopt a stage release approach 
you know, can we really think about levels that way? And that's a hard exercise. Some might even argue it might be premature, but we do know that there are some factors that kind of influence this, right? If there are minoritized communities that are involved or going to be implicated, then you have to be extra careful. Um, if it's going to infringe your civil liberties, then that's a research question you want to think, you know, um, more than twice about. But that's kind of one outstanding challenge. The other challenge is how do we improve access to interdisciplinary experts and reviewers to be able to analyze negative impact? You know, as I said, you know, this exercise, you know, you really can't expect AI researchers to become futurists overnight, right? That's not going to happen. Yeah. So they really need to be in a position where they can consult political scientists, you know, historians, because there are many people who have been thinking about this for far longer. So how do you create processes to kind of have that connection going on? That's one outstanding challenge that the community needs to work on. The other one is something that we discussed now, which is reconciling research norms at industry and at academic institutions. And finally, you know, thinking more about, you know, third-party advisory boards or, you know, can we think about an institution that can really have like a, a bird's eye view of what's going on in the AI research space? Yeah, but that can, that's an aspirational goal, right? I think that's less clear to me how, how that's going to be operationalized, but yeah, this is what comes to my mind in terms of outstanding challenges. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, do you think that that international ad- advisory board space station beautiful dream thing that just feels like something that we're going to have to invent, right? I mean, are there any even any models for us to look at? I think I think that there's often the example of medicine and using, you know, when you're thinking of human subjects, this is almost all human data, right? We have to treat the information as 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 privileged and important, but are we going to have to go a step further and think about how we build the International Space Station of AI ML regulation? It's hard. Like if you think about basic science, it's never been as regulated as, you know, technology that's deployed. And that's for a reason. You know, science is a global enterprise. If you have regulations at the domestic level, like let's say there's a regulation in the United States, don't publish X research for, you know, or, you know, perform X step before you, you know, publish your research. That's really not how research works because there are people from different countries. Research is often funded by institutions from other countries. So it's really hard to be able to think about top-down regulation that way. We also know that this changes very quickly. You know, this is something that requires some flexibility that's embedded into it. And often that can be hard for regulation to achieve because that can be a bit more static. So that brings in a question... Yeah, is this something that you know you want to take to to your legislators? Will it then be susceptible to influences? Is that ideal for open scientific inquiry? But there have been other institutions like in biosecurity. So the U.S. has the National Science Advisory Board for biosecurity. That is not, um, to my knowledge, that's not a body that produces recommendations that are binding. So that's still an interesting mechanism to consider. But you know, it's not perfect because their recommendations are not binding. And, you know, there has been history there with gain-of-function research where we've seen that it's it's hard for that, you know, institution to perform that full role because researchers are often not located in this country. And you need to be able to coordinate with researchers world over if you want to mitigate negative consequences. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it seems to, it, like so many things, it boils down to being able to communicate quickly, clearly, efficiently, and effectively across, you know, just the entire world. It's no problem. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, you said it, right? And it's funny you mentioned that 
because part of this is are we waiting for a you know anthrax moment are we waiting for that you know catastrophic moment or you know what can we do before that catastrophic moment how can we communicate clearly how do we coordinate how do we kind of arrive at a consensus and i think these years are going to be crucial to really arrive at a mechanism that's preemptive you know that lets us think ahead of the problem and the truth of the matter is other scientific communities have gone through this process you know this is not the first time that you know an applied research community is doing it so there are important lessons to think about from nuclear research from cybersecurity and that can really you know help the air research community get more critical about what they can achieve in the next few years absolutely absolutely matthew thank you so much this conversation was amazing and, and so exciting and i really hope spurs people to think not only about their own work but a, about how they interact with the field as a member of a larger community thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it likewise i didn't feel it passed by at all just a final call to all your listeners if they want to get in touch if they want to get more involved and you know they might be researchers themselves they should reach out i'm available on twitter and linkedin happy to chat and make this happen that is it for this episode of talking machines you can tweet at us at tlkngmchns or email us at thetalkingmachines@gmail.com or you can check out our website thetalkingmachines.com tune in next episode